0: Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Uh-huh. I, I, I remember I was eating. little gums bleating. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beef, and now I'm ready for the world, try and sink my teeth in. Hey there. Welcome to episode 110 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Casey Berglund, who's a fellow Health at Every Size registered dietitian and also a yoga instructor who offers courses in yoga for mindful eating and living. We talked about how she went from having a really intuitive relationship with food as a child to restricting her food and trying to manipulate her body size and then eventually going to school to become a dietitian and how yoga and intuitive eating really factored into her recovery I can't wait to share this conversation with you in just a moment. It's such a good one. And as I mentioned last week, we're doing this new thing where we answer a listener question in each episode. So this week's question comes from a listener named Catherine who writes, I've recently gained weight. It's frustrating for all the reasons you and listeners can imagine that I won't go into here. I continue to work with a therapist and nutritionist on eating intuitively, tackling my feelings around food and how they manifest with my anxiety, stress, etc. The problem is I recently found out that I have carpal tunnel syndrome, and my doctor, very nicely and diplomatically, noted that it directly correlated with my weight gain. For the sake of my health, I need to lose some weight. But how do I balance that need with my desire to honor my body, give myself permission, and eat mindfully? So this is a great question, and before I answer it, I should just say that these answers are meant for informational and educational purposes only and are not intended as individual medical advice. Ask your doctor if you have questions about your specific situation. Although in this case, I'd actually say maybe ask a different doctor for a second opinion because this one did not give you evidence-based advice. So I can't quite tell from the question if you were saying that the doctor told you to lose weight after pointing out nicely and diplomatically that your carpal tunnel correlated with weight gain or if they just pointed out that correlation and then you made the mental leap to thinking you need to lose weight. But I'll just assume for now that the doctor said that you need to lose weight and just say that that is not actually evidence-based medicine because what we know, well, two things we know to be true from the health at every size research that I'm always talking about here. One is that there is no good way that we know of with all the decades of research that has been done on weight science, there's no way we know of to get people to lose weight and keep it off permanently. 95% at least of dieters regain all the weight they lost, usually more, And that 5% or maybe even like 2% according to some studies that do maintain significant weight loss in the long term really do so by methods that I would consider disordered eating. So restriction, overexercise, being obsessed with food, thinking about food constantly, the techniques they use are sort of indistinguishable from at least disordered eating if not a full-blown eating disorder in the cases that I've read about. So Just think about that, right? Like the vast, vast majority of people who try to lose weight do not keep it off. So they might lose weight in the short term, but the weight comes back on, and usually people end up gaining more weight than they lost when they regain the weight. So it's not responsible, it's not ethical for medical providers to be recommending weight loss because we just don't have an effective method of weight loss. So they might be like, you know, it'd be nice if you lost weight. Right, as per this fat phobic medical model that we have, but it actually is not sustainable or ethical to recommend weight loss. And there's no known way that we have for people to do that. So that's number one. Number two is that correlation does not equal causation, right? You've heard me say this probably before in the podcast. And you did mention that this was, you know, your doctor pointed out that there was a correlation between the weight gain and the development of carpal tunnel, right? But correlation does not equal causation, which means that just because you gained weight and you also developed carpal tunnel around the same time doesn't mean that the weight gain caused you to develop carpal tunnel, right? And this assumption that weight gain causes disease is at the basis of so much of our public health interventions and so much medical advice that people get to lose weight. You know, that's it's a fat phobic medical model that looks at research on correlations between, say, a higher body weight and diabetes or a higher body weight and cardiovascular disease, because those correlations do exist. And there's good evidence showing that those correlations exist. But it's because we live in a fat phobic society that doctors and other medical providers assume that there's causation there. And the studies we have on the correlations between weight and health outcomes try to control for some confounding factors, but they don't control for really big things that are a likely cause of this correlation between weight and health, which are weight stigma, Because we know from independent, you know, separate research that people who have higher levels of internalized weight stigma also have worse health outcomes on various measures, including blood sugar abnormalities and cardiovascular markers. And so that indicates like, hey, maybe there's a relationship between weight stigma and developing some of these health outcomes that we that the sort of conventional wisdom associates with quote unquote obesity right so it is not actually The body size, perhaps, that causes these outcomes. So there's more and more health at every size research coming out that says, yeah, it's not actually the body size at all or the weight gain at all that's causing these health outcomes, but that it's, in fact, internalized weight stigma. Or another one that's huge is weight cycling. And that is the clinical term for what we know sort of more colloquially as yo-yo dieting. And all diets are yo-yo diets, as my colleague Golda Paretsky likes to say. So any diet that you go on, because of that 95-plus percent failure rate, right, pretty much all diets are going to be yo-yo diets. And so any time you try to lose weight, you're going to end up weight cycling. And weight cycling, again, is independently associated with worse health outcomes, including things that are commonly associated with higher weight. And so how we could read that evidence is to say people in larger bodies or people who have maybe are in an any size body, but they gain weight and they think they should be losing weight because of all of the social stigma and the fat phobia we live in in our society, those folks are more likely to have weight cycled, and weight cycling is what causes these worse health outcomes. So when, you know, we see on a grand scale worse health outcomes in people in larger bodies, it's not necessarily that their body size is causing these health outcomes, but rather the fact that they are likely to have weight cycled more in their life puts them at higher risk of these diseases and that they're likely to have internalized weight stigma. And the fat phobia that exists in our society has affected them, has caused self-esteem issues, has caused people to self-stigmatize, and self-stigmatizing is independently associated with worse health outcomes. So how does that relate to you and your carpal tunnel syndrome? Well, if you think about your history, I don't know what your experience is from this question, but have you weight cycled a lot in your life? Have you internalized weight stigma? Do you have disordered eating, which is also independently associated with worse health outcomes? Right. And, you know, at the individual level, If we look at what the correlation might represent other than the fact that the weight gain caused your carpal tunnel, what about are you working a lot at a desk job, right? Are you at increased levels of stress in your work and have less time for self-care and things like joyful movement and intuitive eating and you're sort of eating on the go all the time, you're not moving during the day, you're sitting at your desk doing a lot of work with repetitive stress on your arms, right, on your carpal tunnels. So that could be, you know, an independent cause of some weight gain because of these shifts in how you're caring for yourself and the carpal tunnel because you're spending a lot of time at the desk doing the repetitive stress that causes the disorder, right, or the syndrome, And so, you know, that's one example of how this correlation might not have anything to do with causation at all, but that it points to a larger issue of self-care, right? Of needing to make some more time in your life for self-care, both self-care in regard to intuitive eating and joyful movement, or just spending a little more time thinking about feeding yourself and getting outside and enjoying a walk in the sunshine, and taking some time away from your computer and away from the repetitive strain that is causing this syndrome for you, right? So that's just one example, right? Another thing that I can just think of off the top of my head that could be a reason for that correlation is say, you know, the opposite. Like if you work at if you you've started working at a really physical job that's very physically demanding but it has a lot of repetitive strain on your arms, right? Say you're like working in a stocking job where you're stocking Boxes in a factory or whatever, you know, something where you're using that part of your body a lot. Right. And say you're moving more for that job. And so you're actually building muscle. Right. And so building muscle can cause your weight on the scale to go up. And that's one of the reasons why a scale doesn't really tell the story why the number on the scale doesn't actually mean anything and body mass index doesn't mean anything regarding your health. And so, again, that's an example of how maybe there's this correlation between the number on the scale going up or your body mass index going up and the carpal tunnel developing, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with your body size. It has to do with the circumstances that created both of these conditions. Right. And, you know, so those are some individual examples. The larger scale examples include weight stigma and weight cycling. Like I said, poverty is another thing. You know, if you are experiencing poverty or struggling with finances and not able to afford as much food or as much time off or you're having to scrimp to make ends meet and you're having to work more and have less time for self-care. And are under a lot of stress because of that, right? All of that can be causing more stress on your body that causes weight gain and the development of a condition like carpal tunnel. But again, the weight is not to blame for your development of carpal tunnel. So I hope that helps elucidate some of the reasons why we don't want to just assume that you, quote unquote, need to lose weight. And I don't know if that was your words or your doctor's words. And I think if it was your doctor's words, I would recommend finding another doctor who gets Health at Every Size. You can look on haescommunity.com, that's H-A-E-S community.com for a directory of physicians and other healthcare professionals who understand Health at Every Size and have pledged to adhere to the principles of Health at Every every size. And I'm on there along with 10,000 other medical providers. So that's a really good place to start. And of course, if there's no health at every size physicians in your area, you might want to try just a different physician and explain to them or even this current physician because you said they, they seem pretty compassionate and caring. Maybe you could explain to this doctor like, Hey, I've, I'm struggling in my relationship with food and my body, and I'm doing this thing right now where I'm working on giving up the diet mentality and learning to eat intuitively, recovering from disordered eating, and the advice to lose weight actually doesn't work for me and isn't appropriate for where I'm at at this point, so can we please not talk about my weight in that way and Help me figure out what to do about the carpal tunnel that doesn't have anything to do with weight loss, right? That has to do with stretching and strengthening that area, giving it some time off, some rest, other techniques that might help that have nothing to do with restricting your food or changing the size of your body. So I hope that helps. And those of you listening, if you want to ask any questions or a listener, if you want to ask any follow-up questions about this, head over to christyharrison.com slash questions to ask your question today. Today's show is brought to you by Lola, a new kind of company for people who get periods. It's a subscription service that delivers a fully customizable mix of tampons, pads, and liners right to your door every month. I can't even tell you how much easier this has made my life. I've been getting my period for literally more than two decades, and yet somehow every month or almost every month, I still find myself digging through every bag and purse and drawer in the house because I'm trying to find a random tampon or pad and I haven't stocked up, I haven't prepared. But now with a Lola subscription, I'm always ready. It's also super flexible, so you can get the mix of products that's right for your body, and you can change, skip, or cancel at any time. My favorite thing about this company, though, is that they're super cool and socially conscious. They make everything with environmentally friendly organic cotton, and they donate products to homeless shelters where menstrual products are actually among the most requested and least donated items. These things really shouldn't be a luxury, and Lola is helping people in need get access to them, which I just love. So definitely check them out, and for 60% off your first order, visit mylola.com and enter PSYCH at checkout. That's mylola, M-Y-L-O-L-A dot com, and use the promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H. We're also brought to you today by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content. They've got so much awesome anti-diet literature. They really have all the great books, like some of my favorites: Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon, Intuitive Eating by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, Shrill by Lindy West, who was our previous guest on the podcast, Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls by Jess Baker, and Dietland, which is a revolutionary feminist murder mystery by Sarah Walker. And I have to say if you listen to that book on audible you might experience your hair on the back of your neck standing up while you're folding laundry or goosebumps while you're sitting in traffic because with an audible mystery performance so powerful you can feel the suspense anywhere you go anywhere you take your audiobooks to listen start a 30-day trial and your first audible book is free you can learn more at audible.com psych that's audible.com p-s-y-c-h We're also brought to you today by Casper. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It has supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And I can attest to this personally because my fiance and I have had a Casper for about a year now, and it really has like this nice pillowy soft quality that I like. And somehow it's like firm and bouncy enough that he likes it and it works for both of us. So you can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering that you're gonna spend a third of your life on it. That's no joke. They offer free shipping and free returns to the US and Canada, and with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash psych. That's P S Y C H, like food psych. Casper.com slash psych and using offer code psych at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Casey Berglund. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up.
1: Well, I grew up on a farm, you know, in a really rural community in Canada. And so from a really young age, I was actually quite connected with food. My family is organic grain farmers, and we had big gardens and and animals and all of the the kitten caboodle. And so from a really young age, I was planting the garden with my mom and helping out in the kitchen. And we had nourishing foods available. And I would say the balanced sort of meat, starch, vegetable sort of meal, I guess the, the farmer's meal. So I grew up eating in that way. And it wasn't until like a little bit later on in my early teens that things started to shift a little bit for me in terms of relationship with food. But from the start, I think I had a pretty healthy, normal, intuitive relationship with food.
0: Yeah, what a gift to, to start out like that. Yeah,
1: exactly. Feel grateful for it now, realizing how many folks don't know where their food comes from, that I, I had that opportunity as a kid to grow up growing food.
0: Hmm. Yeah, to be really connected with your food and connected with the land. Absolutely. That's cool. So what happened when you were in your teens that changed?
1: Well, I was going through a pretty stressful time in my life. I was experiencing just bullying at school. And my parents were having some difficulties together in their relationship. And my mom actually got sick. She had a herniated disc in her back. And so she was someone who worked full time, but then also really stood in that role kind of as a farmer's wife and put meals on the table and fed the men and fed the hired hands. And that's just the way it was, that very traditional feminine role, I suppose. And so when she was struggling to even stand and only had comfort on her back, it was really hard for her to cook. And though she would still do it, I was seeing like her pain. And I mean, obviously experiencing my own and struggling in that way. So lots of stressors. And so at that time, I actually stepped in and I started to cook the meal. So I was about 11 or 12 years old, quite young. And I had learned just from watching my mom how to cook. And and she certainly helped me. But I really realized that I loved cooking at that time. And so that was such a gift in that I, I loved cooking, and I wanted to cook, and I knew that it was really helping out my family. And at that same time, too, I think with all the stressors and with this probably, you know, I feel like I have a better understanding of it now, but probably wanting this feeling of having some control or being able to control the, the love that I was receiving, I also started to kind of do it for that external validation. And I started to really look at my body and think about my body a lot more and weigh myself regularly. And really, I took in a lot of information from various sources about nutrition. So I got extra interested in nutrition and in just like the magazines, teen magazines, and all of the different messages about food and cooking and eating and how to treat your body well. And so I think it started well-intentioned, but then I got a bit obsessed and I started to restrict my own intake and really sort of try and micromanage my body. And it wasn't healthy. I got to a point where I was constantly thinking about food. I was you know, preparing food for others, but restricting it for myself. And so things really were shifting at that time, I think, due to a lot of these factors
0: happening all at once. Mm, Yeah. Was there anyone around you who was dieting and encouraging that behavior?
1: You know, I never really thought about that. I don't think there, there weren't people around me who were dieting. But one of my friends at the time who was from a neighboring community who I figure skated with, just had a naturally really lean body. She's very small boned, very petite. And I was spending a lot of time with her. And and, you know she wasn't dieting or intentionally doing anything to change her body. She was just naturally that way. And I think I found myself comparing my body type to her body type. And in some way that influenced what I was doing for myself. But I don't recall at the time being exposed to other people who were really manipulating their diet or their food intake.
0: Wow, so it was just kind of from these external sources like magazines that you were absorbing these messages. I'm sure the figure skating community was probably also putting a spotlight on bodies in a way.
1: You know, I think that that is a natural tendency and and belief about the figure skating community, but in the rural community where I was, I don't remember that that there was a lot of pressure on that. It really was about being active. You know, I was a a fairly talented figure skater and and I think I wanted to be more competitive and I wanted to be able to compete with the city figure skaters who skated all year round. And so perhaps in some way, those that did influence me, but I don't recall it being a huge
0: thing at the time. Mm, Yeah. So no coaches were like, you need to change your body or anything like that. Nope. Nothing like that, thankfully. Yeah. So it sounds like it was really kind of this internal pressure and this, this sort of like comparison that started to get you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this perfectionistic personality where I I wanted to do everything right. I wanted to be who I thought everyone thought I should be. And I wanted my body to be exactly how I thought the perfect body was. And definitely, of course, media and all those other influences played a role.
0: Yeah. It makes me think that, you know, for anyone with perfectionistic children, (laughs) and maybe myself someday too, if if I have biological children they're going to have probably those tendencies as well like you know mm-hmm. that that's a type of child that particularly needs to be protected and validated for their accomplishments and things other than their body and also maybe have some education around the fact that bodies come in different sizes and all bodies are good and that there's no perfect body type
1: yeah absolutely i think that's totally necessary for folks with that personality type you know i think it'd be great if all children had that education around body diversity and how to treat ourselves well with food and movement and wellness practices that make us feel good especially for for those that might have the tendency towards perfectionism
0: yeah i mean yeah i think it's it's needs to happen at such a societal level too right like educating teachers and doctors pediatricians and parents about this stuff so that they're not transmitting diet culture messages to their kids. Yeah. And then also kind of like individual discussions as well.
1: I very much agree.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you didn't get that kind of education. You didn't get help with this stuff at the time.
1: No, no, I think it was, it was really lacking. And I'm not sure that it was something that we, saw in our community like I I don't know that there was much awareness of eating issues like I didn't even know what a dietitian was for example and in the community that I grew up in it was a 200 person community where we didn't have a hospital in the community and the neighboring community had a doctor that would come in and out but definitely no dietitian so just the resources I think were a little bit lacking there and the knowledge and awareness perhaps lacking or at least that's my perception of it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was just not, there weren't a ton of resources there. Yes. And so what happened from there?
1: Well, so this all happened over the summer. My weight had decreased and I was, I guess, working pretty hard in, in the summer. I, I took in the whole garden. I made the, the pickles and the salsas and all those things and, <laughs> and still was trying to like keep everything together. And then inevitably I went back to school in the fall. And a few things happened that really, really impacted me. One was a home economics teacher had said something to me about whether I was sick over the summer, like, you must have been really sick. And I was like, oh, no, I wasn't, you know, and it but it hit me in in a way that I don't know, it just felt really uncomfortable that she was judging me in that way. And then also, because I was quite an athletic child. The following track season, I was doing my main events, which were sprinting, long jump and triple jump. And in those events, I got second to the girl that I typically won against every other year. And so for me, in that moment, I was like, wow, my body is not strong right now. And I knew inside myself and I didn't share this with anyone at the time, but I knew inside myself that what I was doing with my food intake and probably over exercising was negatively impacting my strength and my athleticism. And that scared the crap out of me and I remember basically making myself get up. You know, I'd go to bed and I'd like get up in the night and have a peanut butter sandwich and it was so uncomfortable but I'm like wow, I need to like I need to put more in me. I didn't really, yeah, I didn't really know how to go about it, but I just knew that something was wrong. And I started to kind of read more about it and almost silently start to heal on my own. And of course my my parents noticed a difference in my body and I did go to the doctor and but I think I tried to, I don't know, it was like nothing really manifested from that. And so for me it really was like an internal process of healing that obviously took years, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight, but It was really looking at my athletic suffering that was a trigger for me doing something different. And then as the years followed and I got into high school, I think I still had many of those diet mentality thoughts. And I still, you know, my weight was increasing, but it's not like that was comfortable. It was it was happening. And I think part of me, the wise part of me knew that that was probably a positive thing. But there was a huge part of me that was resistant toward that happening. And so there was a lot of discomfort in those high school years. But I think I also started to shift my focus into other things that I cared about at that same time. But yeah, it was it was very uncomfortable, uncomfortable period of time because I knew that what I had been doing wasn't serving my body. And I hated seeing my body change.
0: Right. I think that's the thing about this kind of recovery. It's like there's, you have to have that moment where you consider what it's doing to you and how it's affecting the rest of your life. And mm-hmm. that can be a real catalyst for change. But then that doesn't necessarily help with the acceptance of going through the change, right? The reality of the change, the feeling of being in a different body or losing a sense of control that you had is kind of what keeps people stuck I think and keeps people mm-hmm. in the sort of in-between place for a long time.
1: Well, and I still thought about food a lot. So even if my behavior was changing and my weight was changing, it's like the mindset almost changes last, but it did it did slowly heal over time. And then I went away to university and I was actually going to go to acting school but i'd got really good grades and i was like i should go to university that's probably a good thing to do too and because i was interested in nutrition i learned that there was a nutrition program at a couple of different universities and i was offered a scholarship and i i went to study nutrition and i think in university learning about the science of food and the science of how nutrients impact the body i think that really helped with further healing too because i could kind of see Why there was almost damage done before when I was undernourishing myself. And in our I remember one of the labs that we did in university where we all had our body composition measurements done.
0: Oh, God, yes. That was such a triggering moment for me, too.
1: Yes. And, you know, for me, it wasn't a triggering moment in terms of like percent fat or whatever. But what was most what most stood out to me was actually my bone density. And I was like, at this point, I felt like I had been healing my relationship with food for quite some time. You know, like I I felt like I ate nourishing foods and I moved my body in a healthful way and my mindset was coming around. But I noticed that my bone density on my results was like just above osteopenic and i was thinking about wow like would this be the same had i been nourishing myself well when i was 11 12 13 14 you know when my bones are in their prime growth stages so that for me was was more fuel for the fire of like nourishment and and not under eating that's awesome yeah that's a good outcome yeah Exactly. But I know for other people, I can imagine that doing that in university would be a huge trigger for the disordered thoughts or behaviors.
0: Yeah. I guess it depends on where you're at at the the time too, because like when I did it, I was actually a returning student. I was a graduate student and, you know, taking the DPD classes, dietetic, what is it? Didactic program in dietetics for anyone who's not a dietitian. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was doing those classes like pretty far into my also kind of long and winding recovery. But I think the piece that was really missing was like, the psychological piece, the, you know, working through the perfectionism and the comparisons and the all of that stuff. And so When I did that, and we we did it in groups too, we like did, you know, went around to different stations and measured different parts of our body and, you know, with calipers and stuff. And we measured our height and weight and we had to write down all these things and kind of share it with our group. So that was really triggering for comparison for me. And the results that I got telling me what my ideal body weight, quote unquote, should have been were also very triggering. Yes. You know, I think it then sort of forced me to recognize like, okay, wait, this ideal body weight that it's telling me is bullshit because this was, I was that weight when I was really restricting my food and Mm -hmm. I know that's not healthful. You know, I know that wasn't good for me. So it doesn't seem like there's any other way for my body to be that size. So I guess I'm just going to accept that it's not and screw this ideal body weight measurement because it doesn't really Line up with my experience in my body. So it did ultimately kind of force me to come around and, you know, help me kind of see this new level of body acceptance that I hadn't really reached yet. Mm -hmm. But it was also, I think, if I had been a little bit more vulnerable or in it still, like it would have definitely set me back and had me back to tracking my calories and weighing myself and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it kind of depends on where you are when you go through that. But I think like so many of us, I was attracted to nutrition because of my own struggles with food. And I think that's very common for dietitians. I totally
1: agree. And, And I think for many dietitians, studying nutrition and the path of being a dietitian can can either go in one of two directions like it can either really help you heal and be a more empathetic and compassionate and just amazing dietitian or I think if you're not healing it it could perpetuate the disorder because sometimes learning about the you know the numbers and the measurements and all of that it can be hard
0: totally and now, too, I think it's so the, the water is even muddier because there's also the healthism stuff, the like, right. you know, paleo or gluten or, you know, what sort of dietary demon can we cut out, which like isn't really when I was in school wasn't really taught in traditional dietetics programs, but I think is like making its way in a little bit more. And also there are just a lot of dietitians in the media propounding some of those beliefs, too. So it's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, in people's minds, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, the orthorexia piece, I think, is where a lot of dietitians get tripped up. And that certainly was the case for me, too, like having some very rigid beliefs about where my food should come from and that I I wasn't allowed to eat certain things or go to certain restaurants or, you know, chains or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of a journey to overcome, too, because I think being in school for dietetics really kind of promoted some of those behaviors.
1: Yeah, exactly. The obsession with the clean eating, whatever clean may
0: mean. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And there's no actual definition of it. It's kind of just a made up nebulous term, but it really, really gets people. Oh, yeah.
1: People love it and grasp onto it. But, you know, what does it even mean? And is it really serving
0: you? Right. Yeah. And and I think it's that moralizing inherent in it, right? Clean as opposed to what? Mm -hmm. sort of captures people's insecurities, you know, gets them where they live in terms of what they might be fearing or worrying about themselves. Yes. Yes. Truthfully, that's, that's it. Yeah. So how did, how did it go for you after, after that, after you first got into school?
1: Well, I think it it was an evolution. Like, I, I feel like at the time that I got to university, I was on pretty solid ground with who, how I felt about myself and my body and cooking. And and I felt like I had a more liberal balanced diet, but I still struggled with the perfectionism and that mindset. And, you know, you'd mentioned earlier when when you were chatting about educating kids and teaching them about body diversity and how to kind of value yourself based on other things like accomplishments or what have you. I think there's a little bit of risk there too, because it was almost like I transferred that perfectionism of controlling my body and trying to make it perfect to being the best in accomplishing. And so to me, that's still a struggle. Like yes, maybe accomplishing and serving the world and getting stuff done is maybe a more positive outcome than undernourishing your body. But at the root of it, there's still this perfectionism. And I think perfectionism stems from this feeling of not enough or unworthiness as you are. And so for me in the later years of university is when I actually started doing yoga. And although at first I didn't feel like yoga was enough of a workout, I I didn't totally commit to it right away. It was kind of off and on for a while. But eventually, I found this studio and this teacher where we did this very physical class. And I, you know, I was a very physically oriented person. I love to sweat. And so that was wonderful. But it was the first time that I felt these other elements of yoga where I felt like I was in Shavasana. And I was just experiencing complete Like bliss and complete okayness exactly as I was. And it felt like something I needed to explore because until then, I'd always felt like I had to prove myself. I had to be doing something to be worthy enough. And in yoga, I had this experience of like, here I am, And this is freedom. And this is joy. And this is how things are meant to be. And even just some of the philosophy that that particular teacher wove into the class, it really resonated with me. And I think helped me to be on this path towards healing the mindset and the kind of energetics almost around how I was treating myself. So leaning into that initial feeling that bliss feeling that joy feeling I kind of continued to do yoga and then it brought me so much more and I think a whole new level of transformation and healing with how I felt about not only my body and food but just myself period and I think that's still a continual process for me and for many people who have experienced that benefit in the practice of yoga
0: yeah, totally. Yoga was really, really helpful for me too in my recovery um, because it was kind of the same thing. I was used to like, you know, workouts and I was over and very sort of aggressive about my movement. And yoga I actually started doing because of pain, because I was having a lot of back pain. And a physical therapist mentioned that I could do these stretches and do this whole sort of stretching routine at home and like, was kind of annoying to have to do it every day or I could try doing yoga and that would incorporate some of the same stretches and help release my back and stuff like that. So I started checking it out from that perspective and didn't expect to have so many ripple effects from it in my life, you know, but I think it's, it really is such an important thing for people who are tightly wound and perfectionistic and achievement oriented to practice letting go and practice just being in the moment, being okay with what's here, because that was something I had never experienced, and I was never taught to experience. You know, it was always about achievement. My family was always about achievement. My academically, everything was oriented that way. So I just really ne- had never had that experience until doing yoga.
1: Yes, and that was the same for me. And I, I think on a cultural level, we do praise we praise almost this a type perfectionistic personality these high achievers high accomplishing people and yet not realizing how that can lead to illness too and can can lead to not only the physical pain or but mental mental stress and anxiety and depression and all these different things so i really enjoyed the messages that came from yoga, even though some of them I was like, "Ah, I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't really believe that my my judgment mind, my sciencey mind would pop in and be super judgy of (laughs) sometimes, (laughs) right, but definitely aspects of it totally resonated and felt so counter to what I'd heard. All my life, and and yet I really enjoyed the the sense of being able to kind of soften it into that and and let go and not have to be doing so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about the judgments and the sciencey mind too, right? Because we were talking on your interview series about how yoga can be sort of so helpful in so many ways to recovery from disordered eating and body image issues, but it also can be kind of triggering in some ways and exacerbate things that people might be struggling with when it comes to like. Like talking about nutrition or talking about even just sometimes the way certain teachers talk about bodies can be a little bit shaming. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tricky. And I think, yeah, like you said, it can be so healing and so helpful. And there could be some aspects of yoga that might be triggering for people. So I think for one, there definitely still is this perception of what a yogi is and and sometimes when you go into a studio there you don't see the body diversity that you could maybe in a more community oriented class and so from the perspective of someone who's maybe in that space where they're comparing to other people and feeling that perfectionism they could find themselves really comparing to the body types in the in the studio. And sometimes that is the leaner body type. And I guess there's always the the like Lululemon girl kind of idea. And so from that perspective, I think it can be hard to not compare. But then also, I think the yoga community is really tied into some of the let's call them clean eating movements. Because we used that term before, but just different nutrition trends. So certainly the cold pressed juice trend and the and gluten-free and dairy free and you know, non-GMO, all organic, like there's there's certain nutrition trends that seem to align with the yoga communities or the people within the yoga community. And so that could certainly perpetuate disordered eating and this sort of dysfunctional relationship with food.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I've talked on the podcast before, too, about the concept of ahimsa, which is non-harm. You know, if some previous yoga teachers and practitioners have said that the concept of ahimsa sometimes gets translated as you have to be vegan because you're mm-hmm. supposed to do no harm to any living being. And, and so people will take that to its kind of furthest extent and say, you know, you should be vegan, whatever, which for me, again, too, I think that was a really triggering element of the yoga practice and the yoga community that I found myself a part of because when I first I first started yoga at a gym but then I joined a yoga studio and it was one of those studios that happened to have a lot of people who subscribed to this idea and who would like – preach about veganism in their yoga classes in a way that was super unhelpful to me at the time. And and really, I think, not very helpful to most people. You know, I think there is certainly a place to think about your impact of, you know, the impact of your food choices on the environment or whatever, but not over and above the impact on your own self-care. Like, ahimsa, non-harm, has to be non-harm to yourself first and foremost. You know, non-harm, to you so that you can go on to to do good in the world. And if you're being harmed by restrictive eating and dieting, then the last thing you need is another restrictive eating practice being forced upon you in the name of like being a good person. That's just so sure. so confusing and damaging.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and I guess and veganism and Ahimsa, I think that really is a great example. And there could be a really great debate about what does Ahimsa really mean? What do these yoga philosophies mean in our current context in our modern day with people who have different things that they're dealing with, you know? So I always think various ways of eating in and of themselves, if we were able to kind of let go of all the scripts and stories and judgments and emotional stuff that's wrapped up in different ways of eating, like, they can be okay, like veganism can totally be okay. But it's like, how are you using it? And what is the intention behind it? And is it serving you as an individual, you know, and so I think that's where things get get tricky, because you're right, another restrictive diet being thrown at you when you're struggling with restriction anyways, or disordered eating is not going to be helpful.
0: Yeah. And it's such a slippery slope too, because I think a lot of people maybe start out not thinking they have disordered eating, you know, sort of having the best intentions and just wanting to take care of their health, learn more about nutrition like you said, you know, it's like kind mm-hmm. of just an effort to to take care of yourself and then it kind of turns this corner. And I think a lot of these nutrition trends that we're talking about like juice and veganism or raw or paleo or whole 30 or those kinds of things really turn that corner very easily and it's very mm-hmm. It's a very slippery slope.
1: Yeah, I think unless someone has done a lot of healing in general and has a lot of self-awareness and a lot of insight into themselves and wisdom and confidence, like I think it's unless you have that and even with that, it can still be a very slippery slope into it becoming something that doesn't serve you.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I think any sort of diet. I mean, these are diets that say they're not diets and that's what's so tricky right. about it, but it you right. know, it's like moralizing about food, you know. I think anything that has sort of a moralizing component about food is really dicey territory for sure. Versus if it truly is about self-care and you're like, I mean, for example, I've shared this on the podcast before, like I have acid reflux and, you know, there are certain things that can make it worse and I get heartburn and I get, you know, just, it's not fun. It's painful. And that has led me to make a few little changes. Like I gave up caffeine, which years ago I would have never been able to tolerate. That would have felt like way too much restriction. And now because I'm, in a place where I don't restrict myself in any way and caffeine was hurting me. Like every time I would drink coffee, I would get reflux. So I kind of knew like, okay, this is seems to be a trigger for me and it's super uncomfortable. I kind of knew like, okay, this is not helping me. And the payoff from smelling the coffee, tasting the coffee, walking around with my coffee in my hand and feeling like an important adult just wasn't outweighing the pain that it was causing me anymore. And I, and it was very clear that that was a trigger. It wasn't like this nebulous thing where I was like looking for triggers and cutting out more and more things. It was kind of like, okay, that's pretty obvious one. And Mm -hmm. so from that place, you know, saying like, I'm just going to try not having coffee for a while or not having caffeine for a while was such a different experience than previously in restrictive phases where I was like, I need to cut out this, this and this because these are bad and they're gonna harm my body in all kinds of scary ways that were sort of nebulous and not immediately clear. And it had this whole kind of moral component to it. It's like once you can sort of see that difference where it's like truly self-care And I'm like, I could drink coffee whenever I want. If I feel like having it, I will have it. But I just don't feel like having it.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And to me, that's you not getting stuck up in your head with the shoulds and shouldn'ts and all the rules and the diet mentality. But it's you actually tuning into your body's wisdom. And, you know, I think that's very different, tuning into how things feel. And I think self-care comes from that place of knowing what you need and how you feel in a moment and offering yourself what's going to be the most nurturing and caring for you in that moment. So yeah, very different perspectives.
0: Yeah. I think it's it's interesting because some of these diets that say they're not diets, again, also kind of say they're about self-care. And so it can, it can be so tricky. Like when you are presented with this belief that certain kinds of foods are going to be harmful to you mm-hmm. and you're trying to do self-care, it's kind of like, okay, well, maybe I should avoid this for self-care. But the problem is that, that those beliefs are just not founded by science and not applicable to the general population. So I think that's mm-hmm. where it gets... It's different. Yeah, I agree. And so, for you, like when you started, where did you go from starting yoga to being a yoga teacher? Like, how did you decide to make that transition?
1: So, probably for the first six months to a year, I very inconsistently practiced yoga. And that was my path leading up to that one class with that one teacher where something just landed for me. And then, what happened was in my last year uni- of university, I did a karma program at this studio where I worked behind the desk and signed people in in exchange for free yoga, and so I, I did that like once or twice a week. I would go in and it worked perfect because I was studying and I would sign people in. They'd be in class, I'd study a little bit, I'd open up and close the doors, and then I'd get to practice on my student budget. So was, anything free was nice. <laughs> so <laughs> in that space, I, I just started to practice more regularly, and because of this way that it made me feel it was like wow i just craved more of it it felt like self care for me in that moment was like can i allow myself to have more of this positive feeling and this positive approach to exploring my my body and movement and at the time i was still going to the gym pretty regularly and pushing myself and setting goals and all these different things and just naturally i started to go to the gym less and do yoga more and After practicing quite consistently for probably about a a year, I just was like, man, I need more of this. Like, I need to know why I feel the way that I feel and what specifically about it. And what are the other elements of yoga that I'm not even aware of? And so I was exploring doing a yoga teacher training and looking at various different different trainings. And it was quite a path doing that that research and thinking of where I was going to go. I was going to do the, the whole India route, going to an ashram and doing the yoga teacher training there. And then eventually I landed upon this training that was in the city I was living in. And it was actually the, I guess, lineage of the yoga teacher who had the ashram in India, but it was in Edmonton where I was. And it started... I think a week or two after I was to finish my dietetic internship. And so the timing just totally aligned. And I had a month to do this intensive yoga teacher training. So we did the 200 hours in a month and I became a yoga teacher. And I didn't realize how much there was... To yoga. You know, of course, we know of the postures, the physical practice, and the breathing. And, you know, maybe you get little bits of philosophy thrown into the studio classes. But I didn't realize that it was like a whole system and, and science, Eastern science granted, but a science in itself about really like living a life with less suffering. And I found during that yoga teacher training, so many of my previous belief systems about religion or just like how how I see the world and what drives me and what motivates me, it was like they were all shaken up. And I questioned so many things. And I mean, I was also in that teacher training learning about things like Ayurveda, which is the sister science to yoga. And, and with that comes a whole new set of rules around eating and living for your specific body type. And so that challenged me a lot too, because I was like, wow, here I just finished the science degree and, Now I'm learning this other way of thinking about things. And it just felt like everything, I just questioned everything. So yoga teacher training was quite uncomfortable. Again, just like I think every transformation is like you, you kind of have to shake things up and make things a little bit messy before you find some clarity and kind of find what lands and what feels right for you. So I definitely had that experience. And, and I think in that I got to kind of pick out the elements of, the yoga practice and of philosophy that I felt would really serve me and I gained you know even more respect for some of the elements of science and my degree that I felt were really important and really served me and and that's been a continual process, but I knew that I wanted to teach yoga and I knew that there was something to the mindfulness practices that could help people that struggled with food. and so, I think I always, in the back of my mind, knew that I somehow wanted to combine these practices together, like Eastern philosophy with Western science. But it was a process to learn like what that would look like, and, and not even that, but how I would give myself permission to go there when I felt like as a new dietitian, I needed to practice within a certain box. And also as a new yoga teacher, I needed to do things the way the yogis do things. So I started working shortly after that at the university, actually, as a lab coordinator and teaching assistant in the nutrition field. And and I was also teaching some group yoga classes on the side. So still, they were pretty separate. And I mean, I was just like exploring what it was like to be even just working after having been in school for so long. And then, of course, that continued to evolve.
0: Yeah, I'm curious how it did evolve and how you bridge yoga and nutrition in your work?
1: Well, I think after, after really working in a conventional way in both areas in nutrition, like I I eventually worked in the hospital in chronic disease management, worked with people with diabetes, I worked in an obesity clinic, I worked in kidney failure, and also doing the very typical kind of yoga teaching route. I just always felt like there was more that i could offer people or that there was more that was needed than, you know, telling people what they should be eating. I think i almost felt like i was, you know, teaching diets to people and and it there was something about it that didn't feel quite right. And so things kind of just naturally shifted. I mean, i started to blog and write a little bit more about nutrition but also mindfulness in a very western way and mindful eating and i got feedback from folks you know like i could tell that people were resonating with even just talking about mindful eating or mindfulness and at that point it was not as mainstream as it is now and it just evolved and people started to reach out about wanting to get some support where with their nutrition or wellness and so I started to kind of get things aligned to be able to do some private practice work but very minimally and it was just sort of part time and you know eventually I kind of built up some private practice work on the side and and let go of the jobs that I'd been hanging on to and I think as I listened more to clients and heard more about their struggles my practice just evolved to move away from teaching people so much about like what to do and providing these meal plans and giving people more of this approach to explore how. And I think in the yoga practice and in yoga philosophy, that really is a huge piece of it is can we think more about how instead of what so much and explore how we do things? Can you slow down and be present? And so I just would slowly experiment with bringing yoga philosophy into my nutrition counseling sessions with people's permission and with telling them where where the information was coming from and what have you and I think more and more started to resonate and I mean and then I started taking some different trainings like I did a a yoga for eating disorders training That was really beneficial too with other dietitians and therapists, yoga therapists and psychologists. And so being in that community and and learning, wow, I'm not the only one that wants to do this more integrative work. And there's a way to go about it that's still very much honoring evidence-based practice and valuing the gems that come from the yoga tradition. So that almost gave me permission to explore this integration even more. And now I would say that that's totally my niche. Like I have a yoga for mindful eating and living program where I take themes from yoga philosophy and apply them to to help people explore their relationship with food and their body and how they treat themselves and how they practice self-care. So I feel like it's finally more fully integrated, but I had to do a lot of personal growth to give myself permission to let it be that way. Cause I was scared that everybody was going to judge me and that my dietitian colleagues would call me a flake because I'm talking about like mindfulness and yoga, you know? And so anyway, there was a lot that went into it.
0: Uh, I can so relate to that, too. I think like my own journey was, was kind of similar in the sense that I started out in one career in journalism, and then I made this big leap into nutrition and dietetics, and I kind of went from nutrition policy and chronic disease management and prevention into eating disorders and disordered eating and intuitive eating and health at every size. And so kind of making that, that shift... In my second career, too, while trying to bring my first career into it, you know, and having the podcast and and working when I first started working in an eating disorder setting. I was already doing the podcast and just felt like, oh my god, you know, if people here and they and people that I worked with discovered my podcast and were excited about it and I was like, oh my god, like I'm so ashamed, you know, what mm-hmm. I'm saying things wrong. This was the first season and I was just getting comfortable talking about my own history and talking to people about disordered eating and it was like so much shame about owning that I was doing this other thing that kind of bridged into my work in eating disorder treatment, but it was also kind of a different thing. And nobody was doing podcasts at the time, or at least nobody Mm -hmm. in this space. So it felt very scary, definitely. It it took a while for me to own like, no, I'm doing this and there's a purpose to it. And it's kind of my niche and that's good. That's okay. Because if you're sort of on a path less taken, I guess, it's Mm -hmm. hard sometimes to feel confident and rooted in what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's growth, though. Like I said earlier, I think things get messy before they get clear. And when you're ready for that next level of just like owning who you are and what you bring to the table, it's it's hard to build confidence in that when it feels like you're the only one doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. I know. And, and that's where the best new creative paths really happen is like people bridging things and kind of creating a new product or service or niche where there wasn't one before. So it's That's right. it's actually super important to be doing that. But I think it's it's scary for the people who are doing it, especially if we're like perfectionistic, you know, people who thrive yeah. on, on approval, right? And sort of metrics and things that can measure our success. It's like, God, nobody's doing this. This must mean there's something wrong with it. It's weird. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't have someone, I don't have this sort of outside metric of approval to like fall back on or have you know someone tell me i'm doing it right
1: yeah yeah and i think once you start entering into that sort of unknown space and it does get more comfortable and you do get more confident with it but i think i still will have those moments regularly even you know even i think i've been doing this work with mindful eating and you know a non anti diet sort of movement but i didn't even really realize until probably a year ago that there even was or were other professionals that identified as health at every size professionals. I didn't really even know what that was. And like even discovering your, your podcast, I was like, wow, you know, I so resonate with so many things of what this, this Christie lady is saying, (laughs) you know, and now it's, it's just thinking about how things start with you feeling like you're the only one. And then you realize that the more true you are to yourself, the more you can you know, attract people that have those similar views. And and then there's different communities that arrange themselves around that. And and your eyes can be more open to the people that are doing the similar work and and researching in this way. And I think that's just really cool.
0: I know. And it feels so good to find that community and to sort of sink into it, being aligned with what you want to be doing and what you feel is your true calling. You know, like I kind of never sunk into nutrition policy or chronic disease management in the same way there was always something that felt a little off Mm -hmm. and i feel like once i discovered health at every size and intuitive eating i was kind of like oh yes this is it you know this feels Mm -hmm. like me this feels like you know what i already sort of practice or you know i'm coming to to sort of understand through my own work and my own living as a human being you know Mm because I think, yeah, as I I went through my own recovery, intuitive eating was a huge part of it for me. And, you know, then it took a little longer to see like, oh, that's a whole movement. That's not just like one book that helped me in my recovery. And that was it. That's a thing. (laughs)
1: Yes, Yeah. Right. I think that book is really a turning point for a lot of people, though, you know, because I that certainly I didn't mention that I, you know, obviously read the book quite a while ago and and it was just like, yeah, it gives the permission to follow a path that isn't the conventional path.
0: Totally. And
1: it makes sense.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And it aligns so well with yoga and mindfulness and self-compassion and all the things that, you know, it sounds like you were sort of learning and understanding in your yoga teacher training and your yoga practice and I sort of got a little bit from yoga as well and also through therapy and reading about self-compassion and all of this stuff. So it's like kind of plugs in if you're if you're kind of receptive to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it doesn't if you're not ready for it, too. That's the other thing. It's like if you don't have that sort of background, it might seem totally ridiculous. Like, what mm-hmm. is this? This will never work for me. And I think that's the perspective that a lot of critics of intuitive eating are coming from when they write articles about like, well, intuitive eating doesn't help people lose weight. And it's like, that's not the point. But yes. you know, if you're coming to it from that perspective and that paradigm, then yeah, maybe it's just another diet fad. Right. Yeah. It can be approached with a diet mentality, just like any other plan
1: can be approached with the diet mentality.
0: Exactly. Yeah. That's why I think, you know, rejecting the diet mentality is such a key principle of intuitive eating that mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, like where intuitive eating is sort of taught at a more general level, like that gets missed. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the first chapter of that book for a reason, you know, and the, yes. the authors since the publication of like the third edition, at least have evolved even further into the health at every size model and sort of really come out and said, like, you know, rejecting the diet mentality is essential. You can't telling people to diet is unethical. It doesn't work. You know, we have mm-hmm. to, we have to let this go. You guys, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, I think that's hard for people who are really still steeped in it and where there hasn't been a reason to let it go yet. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And when and when the kind of cultural systems aren't letting it go either and the researchers aren't letting it go, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it is hard.
0: Yeah. And like this article that just came out about, I mean, as we're recording this, it just came out, but supposedly saying like, you can't be fat, but fit. And this supposed study that debunked that, which in reality, the study is not published or peer-reviewed. It was just a presentation (laughs) at Mm -hmm. some conference. And media outlets are jumping on it and picking it up and running with it. And then it's causing panic in people being like, oh, crap, you know, is this non-diet thing like really not going to work for me? Am I going to be unhealthy? You know, there's so much fear and fear-mongering in the medical community especially around this stuff yeah and people can totally lose sight of what actual good science is what the preponderance of science already says that you actually can be fat and fit and you can be in a good metabolic place at any size and you can also be very medically compromised and unhealthy in the quote-unquote normal bmi range you know so like bmi has been thoroughly debunked and mm-hmm. so, to see like more studies coming out that are are really relying on BMI and saying that it's an appropriate measure is just like, oh, where have you been? Like, I know why you're living <laughs> under a rock. <laughs> like, I know all this it other just evidence makes our job harder, right? But, but mm-hmm.
1: I guess too, you know, totally. Yeah,
0: yeah. We were talking a little bit off mic about like living in diet culture as professionals in this field and how we're always having to navigate it too and sort of figure out how to respond both on behalf of just our own understanding and on behalf of our clients.
1: Yes, definitely. Like I I find, well, to a certain extent, sometimes we do, you know, you resonate with the people who have similar belief systems to you. And so I think sometimes I'll catch myself and I'll be like, am I just like in this body positive, like bubble kind of? And I think that's true to a certain extent. And so when you see research coming out or whatever coming out about BMI or, or the obesity epidemic or like all these sort of fear-based messages. It's like, okay, you know, like, where's this coming from? Like, how does, what, how do I feel about this? How does this fit into the approaches that I've been leaning towards these days? And sometimes you get hooked into this old way of thinking and, and it takes effort to really like critically break it down and come back to what your own truth is and what the truth of the kind of bigger picture is in terms of science as well. But it's a challenge. And I think I think good professionals are open to seeing these different perspectives and kind of constantly drawing back to what what feels most ethical and what makes the most sense. But it's not without its own challenges.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I think that's that's such an important point to share about and talk about, too, is that like it's so normal for even professionals who are steeped in this stuff to sometimes get hooked on an idea and go along that mental path for a minute, just like our clients are doing and, and many times more sometimes, you know, because it can feel so so urgent for people who are really in it and struggling with body image and this stuff. Yeah. Like it can feel so urgent, like, Oh my God, I, everything I thought I knew was wrong and I have to change yes. right now, you know? And we're right. like, as professionals, we experience maybe a fraction of that, you know? So it sort of gives us some empathy, I think for what people go through on a day-to-day basis in diet culture.
1: Yeah. Things can be pitched in very intriguing ways that make you think about it and wonder if it's right and wonder if it's true.
0: mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And as a, you know, a journalist as well, who's covered food and nutrition for a long time, like I have definitely seen that there is editors want stories that are new and different angles on things that we thought we already knew, you know, the sort of like, uh, what is it called? Like the sort of the hot take or like, you yes. know, the, the new perspective on an, on conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. That is a very, very, Privileged and prized thing in journalism. And when it comes to health and nutrition journalism, that often takes the form of like taking tiny studies that are very preliminary, that don't actually have results that would be generalizable to the larger population, and writing these fear mongering headlines about them and suddenly creating all this panic in people. And then, you know, the first paper or magazine that publishes the story, suddenly everybody's on the story and they're like, oh, we've got. do this too, or you know, maybe a press release goes out and so every every outlet gets the press release and is like, ooh, we got to jump on this. And it's a whole thing. Like it's an industry. We forget sometimes that like media is an industry Mm -hmm. and that people have to get paid (laughs) to keep it going. And how do you get paid in this sort of climate of just information saturation, information overload? You have to have something that is like evokes emotion and rises above the rest of the crowd of noise, you know, and usually the emotion that sells the best is fear, which is really, really sad. Like, I mean, there is research done on which kinds of headlines work the best and like negative headlines and fear-based headlines do a lot better than positive headlines that reinforce what you might've already known or make you feel good about yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're fighting against. You know, that's one thing that I think media literacy in that regard, not just media literacy about how bodies are Photoshopped and manipulated and unrealistic, but also media literacy about like how science journalism and health journalism and nutrition journalism gets done mm-hmm. is super important because, yeah, you got to just be skeptical of everything that comes out, I think.
1: Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, as someone, as a dietitian who does media work, I'm just like thinking about how my work in media has evolved over time. And I'm super grateful for now having relationships with certain media outlets where I can go on and teach like a self-compassion meditation. But at the same time, they're like a little skeptical of it. You know, like it's it's not like that's that's not an easy sell compared to saying like, do these three things to, you know, lose weight or whatever, right?
0: Right. Yeah. That's the stuff that is such an easy sell that always, you know, there's sort of perennial stories about that stuff that media outlets want. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a harder road. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But I've, I've kind of been heartened by the podcast, at least in terms of the reach that it has and the popularity that it has being fully rooted in health at every size. Like I will never do, you know, I did back in my first season, do a couple episodes about weight loss. Cause I didn't know any better, but Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I struck those from the archive. They are gone. And I will never again do any episode that glorifies weight loss or have fear-mongering headlines about your body and how it's broken or anything like that. You know, it's just, it's not ethical. And I think that it's possible to do something that's profitable and popular in an ethical way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great about what you're doing with with the podcast. And it's so I mean, it highlights that people do want meaning too, and they do want these positive approaches. So I think there just needs to be more, more people putting out positive messages.
0: Yeah. And not getting caught in that trap of like, oh, but we still have to tell them that they're going to lose weight or, oh, we still have to toe the line a little bit, which is a, it's an evolution for everyone. Like mm-hmm. I certainly had one foot in health at every size and one foot in like traditional weight management for a while, you know, and it, it was because like any dietitian, I had schooling that just taught the traditional weight management approach. There was no alternative presented. So it takes some time to get Steeped in it,
1: well, totally, and and we were even talking offline about even thinking about going through your site with a fine tooth comb because I know that I still have work there around you know around weight and, and what have you and and you just don't know any better at the time and then you evolve and and kind of forget sometimes what's what's still living on the internet in <laughs> your words, right? And uh, I know it's tricky to keep up with, but it's it's helpful to have professionals to communicate with about that and and to support each other and and call each other out as well.
0: <laughs> totally. Yeah, and I think it's so it's so normal to go through that evolution too. I think sometimes people feel a lot of shame about it. And I know I did when I first was like, "Oh my god, I I've been living in this limbo and I really have to stop even saying the words weight management and like what have I done? You know, but it's like, no, of Mm -hmm. course, like, so many people have done this have gone, you know, walked this path before me. And so many people are walking it now. And we're all kind of in an evolution constantly, whatever our profession, whatever our life path, right?
1: Yeah, we're still human. And we're still susceptible to diet culture messaging, right? Yes. Evolving away
0: from that is the
1: road less traveled. It really
0: is. And diet culture is so insidious. It's like something might not seem like it's diet culture, but it actually is. Or it takes a lot of kind of thinking about the how, like you said, thinking about how you're presenting something or how you're relating to something or where is this coming from? Where is this message rooted? Is this rooted in body positivity and respect for all bodies? Or is this rooted in an idea that your body's broken and needs to change? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we're all on this path. So any professionals who are going through this, I I have so much compassion for you.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Well, tell us, speaking of your website, tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work.
1: Sure. My website is worthyandwell.com. And what I'm most excited about right now, at least at the time that we're recording this, is a cross Canada road trip that I'm doing this summer, 2017. That's so exciting! Yes, it's I, I I'm just thrilled, and it's a lot of work, but it's oh, it's just amazing when you can dig deep into your why and and work from that place and get it out there. So I'm teaching yoga for mindful eating and living workshops, they're two hour workshops at different studio spaces and communities across the country. And yeah, I I hasn't started yet. But I'm excited for it to begin and get rolling with it. And all the details are at worthyandwell.com forward slash road trip. So that's really what's top of mind for me right in this moment.
0: That's so exciting. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so people can find you. We definitely have a lot of listeners in Canada, so I would encourage them to to go find you at one of these workshops.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I I just really want to build community and connection with people in a in a kind of grassroots in-person face-to-face sort of way. You know, you can work online for a period of time and then almost miss that really natural face-to-face
0: work. So yeah, it's so different. It's it's so needed, I think, in our world today, too. Yeah, very much. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Casey. It's a pleasure talking with you, as always.
1: Yes, thank you, too. I'm just so happy to be involved with your podcast and, and continue to support it. Oh, thanks so much.
0: So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body and a whole lot more sign up at christyharrison.com slash email you can also subscribe via itunes and leave us a nice rating and review which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages just go to itunes from your computer or your podcast app type in food psych to the search bar Click on the result that comes up under podcasts and then click on ratings and reviews and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. And that's really cool because we're competing against some of the weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings. to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, stay psyched.